Well, good morning, church. How are you today? Nice to see you. My name's Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 1 if you have it. Uh, remember that we are, uh, we're providing those Habakkuk journals, so if you've got those, uh, you're welcome to use them, and that's an easy way to turn to Habakkuk or Habakkuk, depending on how you want to say it. My computer says Habakkuk. Uh, I'm not going to argue with the computer because it's going to be my boss someday. Uh, if you don't have one of those journals, you can pick one up at the guest central desk on your way out, and, uh, and then you'll have it for the next few weeks. And, or, or, and there's also a Bible in the seat back in front of you. Uh, Habakkuk is at the end of the Old Testament, so, um, you know, I mean, I, I'd try and help you, but I, I don't know. I'd just look at the index. That'll work. Uh, Last week, as we began this study together, Habakkuk the prophet comes to God and he says, man, why aren't you doing something? Why aren't you? The wickedness of your people has gotten out of control. The people are are not living for you. They're not honoring you. They're not respecting the covenant that's been made. So God, why won't you do something? Won't you please do something? We're looking for you to to move and make a difference. And then if you were here for the study last week, uh, God says, oh, yeah, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something. No worries. In fact, I've got a plan in place. You're going to be amazed. You're going to wonder at what I'll do. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. So, so for, for the record, uh, the Chaldeans, that's the same as the Babylonians, essentially. God says, I'm going to raise up your enemies, and I'm going to send them in to destroy Israel. So yeah, I, I see the wickedness. I see the, the, uh, the immorality. I see that they've turned away from God, and I hear that you're wanting me to do something about it. You're going to be happy to know I am going to do something about it. I'm going to destroy Judah, right? So, so just wait for it. Here it comes. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't think that was really the answer he was hoping for, right? By God's own admission, God calls the people hasty. He calls them bitter. He calls them greedy. He calls them prideful. He calls them idolatrous. He says, I'm sending in this wicked people to correct the wickedness of my own people. And I think sometimes when we, uh, when we look at what God has chosen to do or we think about his actions, it can be a little bit confusing. I I wrote here in my notes that sometimes fuller knowledge, uh, sometimes fuller knowledge creates further challenge, doesn't it? You, you learn something new. I remember at one point I had, uh, this, hopefully this doesn't gross you out, but at one point I had a, um, I had a wart on my hand right here. And uh, it was a big one. I don't know where it came from. I don't know how those things even happen exactly. I'm not a doctor, but I had a, I had a wart on my hand and it was just unsightly. You know, that happens sometimes. Some warts I'm sure are beautiful, but mine typically are not. And, uh, so I went into my doctor and I said, Hey doc, I got this, uh, I got this wart on my hand. It's, it's not bothering me. It's not a big deal. It's just ugly or whatever. And I'm wondering if maybe there's something you can do about that. You know, can you do something about this wart? He goes, yeah, no problem. He goes into another room. He comes back with a little torch. And I said, what, what's going on? He goes, well, I'm going to burn that sucker off. And then uh, any part that's not burned off, I'm going to shave off with a razor blade. And I said, well, isn't that going to be painful? He goes, oh, it's going to be terribly painful. And I said, well, no, then I don't want that, right? I just, I'm fine with the ward. It doesn't hurt. Leave it alone. I just left it. You know, I didn't want to, I don't want to, and eventually it went away. I don't know why. Uh, It's not there now. But at the time, I wanted my doctor to do something, but then when I found out what he would do, it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't what I expected. I wanted him to give me like a, I don't know, like an aspirin or something that would make a ward fall off. That would have been totally fine. God's plan to fix my problem is not necessarily always what, what the resolution that I would want. God's plan to resolve a situation is not necessarily always something that I fully comprehend or that I fully understand. And in this particular case, God looks at Habakkuk and says, hey, I am going to do something about the wickedness of Judah, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to send these other people in to lay waste to Judah, to take it into captivity. 
And so now as we come to our text this morning, we see Habakkuk's response to that. We see Habakkuk's response, and we read it a second ago, but I want to look at it again together. Here, let's look at just the the first couple of sections. He starts by affirming things that he knows are true about God. He says, are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I love the fact that, that the first thing that Habakkuk does in response to God's proclamation, which is not what Habakkuk wants, is Habakkuk reminds himself at some level of who God is. There are several things he sort of affirms here. He affirms the fact that God is everlasting or that he's infinite. He affirms this personal God. He says, oh Lord, my God. And that stands in sharp, sharp contrast with what we'd seen about the Chaldeans in verse 11. It says, they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God, right? God himself had said, these Chaldeans, they don't worship me. And in fact, that's one of the, the one of the things that God admits about the Chaldeans is that they're all idolatrous. Now in juxtaposition to that, Habakkuk reminds himself, no, th- my God is a personal God. He's, he is mine. Not only that, he uses the word Lord there. It's translated Lord. The, the word he uses is Yahweh, right? The name of God, the covenant-keeping God. So in some ways, uh, Habakkuk is reminding himself that God is faithful, that he's a covenant-keeper. You're everlasting, you're personal. He calls him holy, my holy one, which means he's separate, which means he's righteous, which means he's other, right? My holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. He reminds himself of the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. He reminds himself that God is dependable and pure. He says, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He reminds himself of these things. God, you are everlasting and personal and holy and trustworthy. You're a covenant keeper. You're sovereign. You're dependable. You're pure. The things we know about God, the things that we know about God should be a comfort to us in moments of confusion, right? I mean, this is a great example to us that in the moments in your life where God is doing something other than what you would like him to do or doing something other than you would expect him to do, when he's doing something that confuses you or maybe in your life, it doesn't appear that God is doing anything at all. And so even in his apparent absence, you're feeling fearful and confused and whatever. A great starting point is to remind yourself about the truths of who God is everlasting and holy and personal and pure and loving and gracious and kind and generous. All these things we know are true. That's where Habakkuk starts here. When we talk about our vision as a church, the kind of people we want to be in the years ahead, we want to be people who radiate peace because of our confident expectation in who God is. There's a piece of this is, is him sort of articulating a confident expectation in what he knows to be true about God. But we have to be careful also. Because in the midst of his declaring things about God that he knows are true, I also see him in some ways sort of reminding God or appearing to remind God of who God is. Do you see that there as well? It's almost as if he's trying to keep God accountable. He says, God, you are of purer eyes than to see evil, verse 13, and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? He says, God, you are all these things. You can't look at wrong. 
Why are you being silent? Why are you being idle? He goes on to describe uh, the, the conquest of the Chaldeans over Judah. He says in 14, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. It's interesting considering that we have a ruler. We have a ruler and it's God himself. It says he brings, he's talking here about the Chaldeans, 15. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Essentially what Habakkuk is looking at God and saying is, God, you are eternal and you are holy and you are pure. So why is it then, knowing that you are all those things, why is it that you're not acting in alignment with your character? I've just told you who you are. So why are you being silent? Why are you being idle? Essentially that middle section is him looking at God and saying, you, O God, are contributing to the idolatry of the Chaldeans. Because the Chaldeans are going to come in here and they're going to gather us all up like fish in a net. And when they do, they're not going to turn to you and say, oh, thanks God for giving us your people. When they do, you know what they're going to do, these Chaldeans? They're going to turn and they're going to worship their hooks and their nets. They're going to worship their weapons of war. They're going to worship their siege engines. And they're going to look at themselves and be prideful. So God, in essence, you've just told me that you're going to do something about the wickedness of Israel, but you've also just told me that you're going to do things that God, you're not allowed to do. Now here's where the danger comes. The danger in our life, in affirming the things that we know to be true about God, is that sometimes we start to believe that what we know about God, what we affirm about God, what we've learned about God, is everything there is to know about God. Does that make sense? And there is a form of idolatry. There's a moment here where we pivot, where we become arrogant in assuming that we can hold God accountable to what we know about him. And that places a lot more confidence in what we know about God than it should. It's interesting, in the book of Job, we're going to look at Job a couple times this morning, there are places where both Job sort of does his best to articulate how he thinks God works. In the midst of suffering, Job has argued with his three friends who are, uh, admittedly don't have a great view. And then there's another one, uh, Elihu, who comes in and he sort of lays out a different perspective. But Job essentially has looked at God and said, I, I guess you're just kind of ambivalent in the midst of my suffering. And in Job 38 through 41, God comes back and says, really, Job, you're going you're gonna to pretend like you've got me all figured out? Is that what you're going to do? You're going to pretend like you have me completely understood? In Job chapter 38, verse 1, and we won't read all of these chapters, although they're great reading. So for instance, if you're looking for something to read this week, or you're looking for something to read after lunch today, read Job 38, 39, 40, and 41. It's incredible uh, the way it will shift your perspective about what you know about God. But just to give you a little sampling of this, here is God's response to Job in Job 38.1. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. By the way, when God looks at you and says, Hey, put your pants on. I got some questions for you. That's not a great day, right? That's not a good day. Why Why weren't his pants on already? I don't know. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. God says, Job, I want to ask you a few things. Just to, just to put your perspective in place here. Job, I want to ask you a few things. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I'm trying to remember, Job. Were you? No, I don't, I don't think you were. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. 
Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? We don't have to read all of these chapters to kind of get the gist of what God is saying here. He looks at Job and he says, you think you know me? You think you understand everything about my motivation, everything about who I am? Listen, you have the ability to know some things about me, and that's good. I've revealed myself to you, but you don't know it all. You weren't there, right? He's reminding Job that he has limited knowledge, that he is finite in his understanding. I think sometimes you and I lose sight of the fact that while we know some things about God and we can affirm some things that we've, we've learned from the scriptures or that God has revealed to us, we have to be very careful that we don't get to a place where we start to put our faith in what we know about God instead of putting our faith in God. Let me say that again. And if you're taking notes, this is what I want you to really think about. There is a difference between putting your faith in what you know about God and putting your faith in God. Those aren't the same thing. Because God, admittedly, is bigger than what I know about him, right? So if all I do is put my faith in what I know about him, then I'm limiting him. And I run the temptation here, I run the risk of doing the very same thing that that Habakkuk is doing here in chapter one. Looking at God and saying, I know you're this, and I know you're this, and I know you're this. Therefore, God, you cannot, you will not, you should not. Right? Who is Habakkuk to look at God and say, you cannot, you should not, you will not. Habakkuk has some understanding of who God is, but he is not God. There's a difference between having faith in what I know about God and having faith in God. Proverbs 3, 5, familiar verse maybe to some of you, says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. I always sort of interpreted this verse until, until I was doing this study over the last couple of weeks. I always sort of interpreted that verse as a juxtaposition between sort of Christian thinking or religious thinking and secular thinking, right? Don't lean on your own understanding. And what the, what the, uh, the proverb probably means is just don't lean on, you know, uh, unregenerate thinking or non-Christian thinking or sinful thinking, the worldly thinking, right? I don't think that's what the proverb's saying. I think the proverb is giving us all a fair warning that we have to trust in the Lord with all our heart. In the Lord, not in what we know about the Lord, because what we know about the Lord is by its very nature limited because of who we are. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and what? Lean not on your own understanding. You guys, I think that includes our own understanding of who God is. Because our understanding of who God is, is finite. God has revealed certain things about himself in the scripture. God has revealed certain things about himself in nature. But we don't know everything about him. And even what we do know is subject to our own limitations with regard to interpretation. Even what we do know about him is subject to our own limitations with regard to interpretation. So when we look at God and say, you will not, you cannot, you should not, we run a great risk of being wrong in that. Habakkuk looks at God and says, you can't use the Chaldeans because you're pure and you're holy and you're everlasting. You can't do this. And it's as if God says, oh, really? Maybe you have something to learn about me. Maybe you have something to learn about me, Habakkuk. Maybe he wants to expands, expand Habakkuk's view. I think it's interesting in the middle of this that he says in, uh, he says in 13, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I love the fact that uh, Habakkuk feels qualified to make, uh, make moral judgments about the, the, the relative righteousness of the Chaldeans and the people from Judah, right? We do this a lot, don't we? 
We look and we go, well, you know, these, these people are worse than me. These people are more wicked than me. I mean, I, I, I at least go to church on a Sunday. I at least know some Bible verses. I at least try to be loving and kind and generous. But these other people, they never do that. Pretending, if you were, that we know everything about the hearts of other people. Pretending that somehow we've elevated ourselves over others. I think it's interesting that, that Habakkuk feels competent to judge the relative righteousness of men against one another. He says, how can you use people more wicked than us? Where just a few verses ago, he was saying, God, we're so wicked, you should do something about our wickedness. Now when he finds out he's going to be punished, he starts going, well, you can't use them because they're really, I mean, we're bad, but they're like mega bad. I'll remind you, Romans chapter 3, verse 10 says, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Another piece of our vision statement, not to keep coming back to it, but I do think it's important we keep it in front of us all the time. When we talk about revolutionary kindness, we talk about revolutionary kindness. That's the kind of people we want to be. Revolutionary kindness, what? Rooted in humble solidarity. What's that humble solidarity? It's a recognition that all mankind is equally in need of redeeming. That all mankind is broken, regardless of how much money you make or what country you live in, regardless of what color your skin is, regardless of your gender, regardless of anything. All of us need to be rescued by a loving and gracious God. That humble solidarity is a recognition that we like to do this thing where we go, well, we're more righteous than they are. They're more wicked than we are. But in God's eyes, Romans 3.10, none are righteous. Each one turns away. So that judgment that we're doing is based upon our limited ability to perceive other people and we do it because we want to elevate ourselves. In some ways, that elevation of ourselves is the very same reason that we want to put God into a box of what we know about him, right? We want to go, I know these things about God. I know them and I've studied them and I've learned them and so I put God in this box of what I know and I try and keep him crammed in there and then I can stand on the box and keep my head up just a little bit taller than other people. But it's interesting here. Essentially what God is doing is God is breaking the box. He's smashing Habakkuk's box. Habakkuk says, God, I know who you are. You fit inside the parameters of what I can understand. And you cannot, you will not, you should not. And God's like, I'm not going to go in your box, Habakkuk. And I would, I would want you and I to wake up this morning and recognize that God doesn't fit in our box either. We are finite, we're limited. We can know things, but we don't know everything. We build these boxes out of our knowledge and we try to keep God inside. Interestingly, in our our teaching meeting on Tuesday morning this last week, George Warren and I wrote down what he said because uh, he's a a missionary and a a servant in our church. He said this and and I quote, he said, the moments when God jumps out of the box can be heartbreaking because our box is getting destroyed. He says, those moments where I think I know God and I think I understand him and I can sort of puff up my chest. This isn't George now. This is me taking what he said and putting it in my own life. But those moments where I feel like I can go, yeah, I know who God is. I know what he will do. I know what he won't do. Those moments when God smashes our understanding of him, when he breaks out the confines of the little box we've put him in and all of a sudden we have to go, wait a second, did I not understand who God is? I mean, I grew up in a church believing that God only spoke through the King James Version. And I remember the mind-blowing moment when I found out that there were people who used the NASB who actually loved Jesus. 
I, I mean, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but I grew up in a tradition believing that God only liked Republicans. And it was a mind-blowing moment when I realized that there are some Republicans that don't know anything about God, that God has no political affiliation, right? And yet for a long time, I had God in a box, a Republican box, a King James Version box. I remember when I was on tour with the band, I was in a, a Christian band for a little while, and we got an invitation to go and play at an Episcopal church in Delaware. And I said, no, because you can't. I mean, I figured they wouldn't let me share the gospel in an Episcopal church. And I said that to the priest. I said, oh, we, can't, we like to share the gospel, you know, and you guys don't believe in the gospel. And the guy, the guy, the guy I mean, this isn't like when I was 10, you guys. This is when I was like 20, right? And the priest kind of laughed on the phone and he goes, what do you mean we don't believe in the gospel? And I said, well, you're an Episcopal church, so you do all the whistles and the bells and the smoke and the, you know, the masses and all that stuff and you believe in all that, right? You, you carry around a thing of the Virgin Mary on a stick or whatever. I don't know anything about it, but I just know you don't like the gospel. And he goes, come and share the gospel to the people in our church. And so I went and you guys, I was really scared. I was really nervous. And in sitting through, they did a late night mass. And in sitting through it, the box of God, the Baptist, the fundamental Baptist box I had put God in, the the sides of it were blown out. I couldn't keep the corners together because here was a man who got up and yeah, the service looked way different than the one we did where I was growing up. But it was a service that absolutely revered the Lord Jesus as creator, as God, as redeemer, as king. It blew my mind that God was different than what I had understood and I was so proud of what I understood. But what did God do? He blew out the margins of my box. If you and I aren't willing to embrace mystery, if we're not willing to embrace mystery, if we hold on to our box and reject mystery, we eventually become just like the Chaldeans. What was, what was the accusation that Habakkuk made about the Chaldeans? Well, they're going to start worshiping what they know. They're going to start worshiping their nets and their hooks, their tools of warfare. They're, gonna, they're not going to worship God. They're going to worship themselves and what they're capable of. Can I tell you that when we put God in a box and we refuse to embrace the fact that he might be different than what we anticipate, that he might be bigger and larger, that, that even what we know about him, we may not know fully and completely, that he may want to blow our minds with things about who he is. We have to embrace that mystery. And if we don't, we become like the Chaldeans, not worshiping the God that is in essence unknowable, that is amazing and awesome in the true sense of the word awesome, and that he deserves our awe. Instead of worshiping that God, you know what we start to worship? We start to worship our box. We worship what we know. We have faith in what we know. We have faith in what we've studied. We have faith in what we can argue and defend. Habakkuk says, God, you're everlasting and you're pure. You can't, you can't do these things. Romans chapter 11, verse 33 says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. In my notes as I was prepping this message, I wrote, Darren, is it possible you have more to learn? Don't laugh. Isn't it weird that I have to write that question? Of course I have more to learn. Does that make you feel scared? Does it make you feel scared that the leader 
of, of the congregation here, the leader of the community, has more to learn about who God is than with all my studying and all my preparation, with all my years of teaching, with all I can declare about God, there is more for me to learn. If it makes you nervous, you shouldn't be. It's amazing that our God can't be kept in my box. You have more to learn? Of course we do. God says in verse 5, wonder and be amazed. Wonder and be amazed. The very nature of wonder is that it sort of blows our mind. He says, I'm going to blow your mind by using the Chaldeans. Is it possible you have more to learn? Is it possible, Darren, that you've been wrong? I wonder if there are places in our understanding of God that we've been flat out wrong about who he is. But, but because we've been more preoccupied with keeping the corners on our box and keeping the lid on our box so we have a thing to stand on, we haven't stopped to look and go, does this actually feel in alignment with the God of the Bible? Does this actually feel in alignment with the character of Christ? Does this actually feel in alignment with what God has revealed about himself and what he has called us to? There are moments where we just want to hold on to our box. And so we sort of put blinders up. But are there places where I've been wrong? Places where I have more to learn? Are there things I don't understand? You see, the humble embrace of mystery is essential for a follower of God who wants to put his faith in God rather than what he knows about God. The humble embrace of mystery. We, we have to be people who can look at God and say, I know you to be everlasting and I know you to be pure and I know you to be holy and personal. I know you to be a covenant keeper, but what you're doing now doesn't fit in my box. So God, will you blow the walls off my box? Help me understand where I'm wrong. Help me understand the greater dimension of who you are. Expand my knowledge of you. Expand my understanding of you. Expand my interpretation of what you've said. Grow me in the unfathomable and unsearchable riches of who God is. It's interesting then in verse two or verse one of chapter two, if we go back to Habakkuk, Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. I love this. So he says, God, you're everlasting, you're holy, you're personal, you're a covenant keeper. I, 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 you can't do these things. You shouldn't do these things. You won't do these things, right? We will not die, he says, right? I understand who you are, and so what you're doing, I just want to keep you a little bit accountable here, God. Uh, you're, you're not doing what you're supposed to do. So get in line. Get back in my box, is essentially what Habakkuk is saying. But then at the end of that, after his second complaint, he says, I'm going to stand on my watchtower, and I'm going to wait and see how God responds. Can I tell you, I love that posture. I love the posture of waiting to see what God will say. This is confident expectation, right? Confident expectation, not in what Habakkuk knows, but in who God is. You see, we don't get to choose what God will do. We don't get to choose what God will say. We don't get to choose where God will work. But what we do get to choose is our posture in response to him. I love the fact that Habakkuk sort of lays out his heart. He lays out where he's at. And then he says, now I'm going to wait and see what God will say. He's interested in a dialogue. Can I tell you that increasingly in our world today, I don't think people are interested in dialogue or exchange at all. We love that. Uh, we love, there's, a, there's a sort of a, a concept, which is the drop the mic concept, right? You know what I'm talking about? That, that basically means that you say something audacious or you say your piece or whatever, and then you drop the mic and you walk off stage, right? And everybody's like, whoa. 
he dropped the mic, right? And we love that. We love just being able to declare something. It's a, oh, I, w- I would also call this bumper sticker culture, right? Bumper sticker culture is essentially not interested in an exchange or a dialogue. When you put a bumper sticker on your car, you're essentially wanting to declare a thing about yourself or declare a thing about your world or declare a thing about your honor roll kit or whatever, and you're not looking for any feedback on it. You know what I'm saying? A bumper sticker is not an exchange. A bumper sticker is not instructional. A bumper sticker is not looking for a back and forth or a dialogue. It's not a relationship. There is no conversation in a bumper sticker. A bumper sticker is, this is what I think, drop the mic, deal with it. And I think a lot of us approach God that way. I think a lot of us approach God and we go, hey, where are you? What are you doing? Why didn't you do what I told you? I know you're everlasting and pure and holy and just. So why are you doing what I've told you to do? Drop the mic, run away, right? I told him. How do you think God responds to our drop the mic moments when we just want to declare a thing and run away? I think there are a lot of people in the world who go, I don't think God exists. If God exists, he's a jerk, whatever, right? Drop the mic, run away. They're not, they're not waiting to see what God will say. It's not wrong to declare what's on your heart. It's not wrong to express your doubt. We've talked about that before. Even recently in our study of John, we talk about the fact that God welcomes our questions. He welcomes our doubts. It's not wrong to look at God and say, I'm confused. This doesn't fit in my box of what I thought I knew about you. It's fine to look at God and say, I don't get it. But you have to have the the humble willingness to wait and see how God responds so that there can be a dialogue, so that there can be a back and forth. After God reproves Job in Job 38, 39, 40, and 41, in 42, Job answers this. Verse two, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and, your make, and, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. One of the, the mistakes that Job had made earlier in this study, or in, in this story, is that he had done that same thing where he made himself out to be the righteous one. And in so doing, he said, well, the things that have happened to me can't have happened because I'm a bad guy, because I never do anything wrong. By the time we get to 42, we see Job going, okay, okay, I hear you. I don't know it all. I don't have it all figured out. I don't understand. I can lay these things out to you and then I wait for your response. But when I hear your response, I am humbled to the point of recognizing that I'm that I'm fallible, that I'm broken. But there's an exchange, there's a dialogue. Not only in Habakkuk chapter two is Habakkuk saying, I will take my stand and watch to see what God will say. He's actively looking for dialogue and response from God. Not only that, he says this, and I will answer, uh, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So there's two aspects to this. He not only says, I'm going to stand on the watchtower and I'm going to be attentive, I'm going to be diligent to listen for God's response, and not only am I going to listen for God's response, but I'm going to pay close attention to how I respond to his response. Why? Because he's already blown it, right? Yeah, that's a good answer, right? He says, no, what matters is not just that we're having a dialogue, it's not just that God responds to me, but it also matters that I come to God in humility, that I come to God with, a, with an understanding that he will not be contained in my box, that he will not be corralled into my will. 
I'm going to stand on my watchtower and I'm going to listen intently for God to, to dialogue back and then I'm going to pay close attention to what I say back to him. There is a call in our lives for reverence. I'm not suggesting that we can sort of just treat God like our buddy, that we could just treat him you know, like somebody we'd hang around with beside the pool. He is the creator of all things. There is a call for respect and reverence, but he is willing He is willing to dialogue with us. Whatever your fear, whatever your concern, whatever ways in which the lid of your box is getting blown off, don't just pay attention to what God says to you, but pay attention to how you respond. And I don't even mean just verbally or in your journal. I mean, pay attention to your heart attitude. When God speaks, when God reveals himself, when God blows the lid and the walls off our box of what we know about him, embrace mystery, accept reproof, Humbly allow your box to be shattered. And then don't build another box. I wonder this morning if there are things about God you don't know or understand or like. I want you to understand that all of us feel that way sometimes, right? That, that if we were to do a show of hands, which we're not going to do, every person in the room, if they're being honest, has moments when they look at what God has done and they go... Yeah, I don't, I don't understand. This isn't, if I were God, this isn't how I would do it. We've talked multiple times before about the fact that many times we want to recreate God in our own image. When we think of what God is like, we sort of imagine him like us on, us on our best day. God is not us on our best day. He's infinitely greater than that. But the questions you may have, the places where, where God doesn't fit inside your box, can I tell you, all of us feel that. All of us feel, you're not alone. Are there, are there things about God you don't understand? Yeah, we, we would all agree. Are there things about God that you may be wrong about? Yes, all of us are wrong about God in some things. We can't even put our finger on it today because if we knew it, we would change it, right? It's called a blind spot for a reason. But we have to be actively listening for God to reveal to us the places where we've misunderstood who he is. For God to show us in the scripture where our interpretation maybe has been off or maybe our interpretation has been biased or maybe our interpretation has just been fed to us by other people. And so we have to listen for the voice of God as he reveals himself through his word, as he reveals himself through his spirit, and as he reveals himself through community. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is in Ephesians 3.14, where Paul prays this for the church at Ephesus. He says, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let me tell you what that prayer says. It essentially says, Paul Paul says, I'm praying for you that God through his spirit will give you strength and not just random strength to fight, you know, bad guys or whatever, that God will give you strength what? So that the Lord Jesus will be settled down at home in you, right? That he'll give you strength in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your heart through faith and you'll be rooted and established in his love. So the baseline, the baseline is God's love for us because of the power of his spirit within us. That's the starting point. Once the power of God's spirit is establishing who who he is and his love for us, then we have the opportunity to begin to reel in and increasingly apprehend the unknowable love of God in its height and depth and width and length and to be filled to a measure of the fullness of God. How does it happen? Together with the saints. See, there's something beautiful about 
a community of people who were following Jesus, who were rooted and established in his love by the power of his spirit, but who are all of us learning increasingly about the unknowable love of Christ and its height and depth and width and length. That doesn't happen in isolation. It happens when we share our stories. It happens when we live life together. It happens when we walk shoulder to shoulder because your experience of the unknowable love of God and my experience of the unknowable love of God may be slightly different. And so when I hear your story, when I hear the way that God blew the doors off your box and didn't let you build another box, it will grow my understanding of who God is. It will, it will train and sort of realign the places where I was wrong or the places where I've misunderstood our knowledge of God and our filling with a a measure of the fullness of God happens in togetherness a mutual rootedness in his love and he is able to do that it says here verse 20 he's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us he's able to do more than what we think He's able to do more than what we ask. So in those moments where we're tempted to go, God, you will not, you cannot, you should not. I want us to be reminded to embrace mystery, to humbly accept reproof, and to wait for God to blow the doors off our box and not try and cram him in that again. Ultimately, where is justice? Justice is ultimately met. Because here we see Habakkuk going, when are you going to do something about the wickedness? Well, ultimately, justice is met perfectly in the cross. Romans 3, 23 and following says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. If you have any question of whether or not justice will be served, understand it already was. Justice was done when the sin of the world, when the wickedness of the world was placed on Christ and he died on our behalf. And he extended to us new, uh, new life. He extended to us a restored relationship with God the Father. He extended to us his grace. We can look at our circumstances and go, God, where is justice? But justice is met fully and completely in the saving, atoning work of Jesus on the cross. It never gets better than that. Will you embrace mystery with me? Because there are a lot of things we can learn together about the wonder of God if we won't just keep trying to cram them into our boxes. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us, even though it's a little bit scary, that you would stir in us a willingness maybe to dismantle our boxes before you smash them up. That we would go, no, there, there are things I hold to be true about you that I put my confidence in, but more than I put my confidence in the things that I know about you, I put my confidence in you, in the wonder of you, in the majesty of you, in the unsearchable wealth of who you are. God, grow my knowledge of you. Transform me as I embrace wonder and stop trying to tell you who you are and what you can and can't do. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.